Welcome, everybody, to another episode of What They Aren't Telling You with Melissa Floyd. We are continuing our discussion with law enforcement today, and I have to say I'm really looking forward to this interview. I have a lot of law enforcement that I'm talking with and doing interviews with, but this particular gentleman really caught me as somebody who is really genuine, authentic, has a great story to tell, and I think you will all really benefit from his words today. And again, as always, we're keeping law enforcement anonymous, so I will not be mentioning his name or location, but I appreciate your time. Thank you for making time for this and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to happy to be here. Thank you for giving me a, a platform and a way to kind of tell a little bit about what it's like in the, in the day in the life and what, uh, what it is that we do. And I spoke with this officer uh, last week, and it was funny because I was just going to get a five-minute phone call because he wasn't really sure he wanted to do it. And it was so funny because that turned into a wonderful, long discussion, and we were able to talk about lots of different things. And I really saw him come out of his shell just in that phone call, and, and it's great because he does have so much to share. And it's funny, I do notice with cops, you kind of have this like, you know, standoffish vibe kind of at the beginning, which I think is sort of part of the job. And so it's so nice to be able to get past all that and like delve into important questions, delve into what's below the surface. And I've had lots of officers really get a chance to open up. It almost feels like in a way that they don't do often, if at all. And so this has been really fulfilling for me as well. I, uh, that is funny. I'd agree with you. I think it's like a defense mechanism for us to kind of, I don't want to be standoffish, but say standoffish, but you almost like, oh, let me give this person an opportunity to show me who, who they really are, what their true intentions are. So you kind of do more of like, like an evaluation period of somebody to kind of try and gauge what their intentions might be. No, I get it. I mean, I, again, it's part of the job. I think it's how do you turn that off if that's literally kind of what you're trained to do essentially as part of your career? Right. Yeah, I'd agree. 100%. So let me start with my first question. I kind of want to go into some background because I think your particular background really shapes a lot of your perspective and gives extra weight to kind of what you're offering as it relates to the discussion right now with law enforcement and the public and the discussion about the tension with race relations within the country as well. So um, I want to start with the first question. With your family, you're the son of an officer also uh, who has been in law enforcement for about 30 years, and he's also black. You mentioned that. How do you think him being in law enforcement for so long has shaped you growing up, let's say, and do you think it led you into the career choice that you are in right now? Uh, you know, I'd say that it's been really cool because my dad He's been very successful in his career, um, but he's never pushed that on myself or anybody else in my family. And it's always been cool. It's always been, he's always had a job I could be very proud of um, because of what I know that it stands for. Um, I'd say with, with him, you know, was, he didn't really bring work home, which was nice. You know, he was just always dad or, you know, pops to, to me um, and to my siblings. But just in his demeanor, you know, in the way that we were raised, like a sense of duty to follow the rules, you know, we we're very heavy on and still like that, like for myself, do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, you know, not because somebody else is watching. So that's kind of how 
we were raised. I, uh, I remember in high school, when you got your driver's license, you had to wait for a year to, you know, it was like a probationary period before you could drive anybody. And none of the other kids, you know, they all drove people the day they got their driver's license. And not my family. My dad's like, nope, you're not driving anybody. The law states X, Y, and Z. And so it was just, you know. He, he was regimented. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, too, another thing is um, we've all, I, I mean, I've obviously made my own sacrifices being in this job. But even growing up, my family, we all kind of sacrificed for the job because of, you know, my dad missing. I remember him missing birthdays, school events things that he couldn't be at because he was putting the community first or putting the public first and going to work and doing whatever it is that he needed to do. So, you know, that was kind of hard growing up, but to share my dad with the citizens of where he worked, um, but I was proud to do it because I was proud of, of him. As a teen and a child, Were you able to understand that at that point, or was there hurt there as a result of missing him? Yeah, you know, I think a little bit because, you know, you you want dad to be there, right? You're like, man, Pops just can't be there. You know, he's got to do, you know, when he was on the SWAT team, he had to go to, you know, go to missions for that, you know, whatever it was, you know, there's that disappointment because you want him to be there. But again, I... I was proud of my dad and what he did from a very young age. So I knew what it was that he was doing. So of course there's there's that initial disappointment that he wasn't going to be able to make it or he wasn't going to be there. But then there was the, you know what, he's, he's doing it for the good of the community. And that all, that was always helpful. So I never like held that against him or was upset at him for that. It was kind of like, Oh shoot, he can't be there. Oh, but, He's got to do it for work. That's just, it is how it is. It was an, it was a kind of a normal thing. He didn't miss a ton, a ton, but he definitely missed things. And it was kind of like a normal, you know, he's got to do it. He's got to work. It was all pretty normal for us growing up. You know, I don't think for other families, that's probably not so much of a normal thing. But for us, that was, um, it was just something that we were always used to. He, he never pushed his career on me, which was nice. I mean, he always just wanted me to do what I wanted to do and just wanted me to be just wished for my success in whatever it is that I did. And to be honest, when I told him that I wanted to be a police officer, you know, I did something previous for, for four years. I worked in corporate America after graduating from college. And when I told him I was looking into this career, I wouldn't say disappointment was his reaction, but I think he, you know, he knows obviously as well as anybody could, how hard this job is on you as a person, as your family, the things that you see and deal with. So I think he was just being a protective father. He's kind of like, are you sure this is what you want to do? And I told him, yeah, I've done my, I've done my due diligence and, you know, I want to take part and, and do this. So he's uh, supported me ever since, but he never pushed their career on me which was nice. I I came to it of my own volition. And what would you say is the greatest lesson he was able to teach you that maybe prepared you for this career? I think two things that that my old man really taught me was to work hard. You know, I think your work product speaks for itself. 
So instead of telling people, look what I'm doing, look how hard I'm working, you know, you just put the work in and um, it's noticed. And then the other thing that he taught me, which I take with me everywhere, is just to be respectful to everybody, whether that's people that you work with that you might, you know, that might not like you or they they kind of are, are rude to you or for, or whatever, you know, you don't have to be best friends with them, but you know, be respectful to everybody because you never know. You never know when you're going to run into somebody later in life or, you know, how that the way that you treat them is going to positively or negatively affect their day or their outcome or their viewpoint on you or your profession. So I think those are the two biggest things that I, that I took with me in life and especially in this job is to just be the hardest worker that I can be and then just to treat everybody with respect no matter their their background or their beliefs or anything like that. So those are the, probably the two most valuable lessons that uh, I learned from him. And moving ahead because you're just talking about this, being biracial at, at this point in history is especially in law enforcement is a really unique position, I think, for you to be in, because on one hand, you're able to understand the struggles in a certain community and also understand the backlash to another community, while at the same time being in a profession, which in itself is receiving a lot of negativity and hate and tension. And you're literally a combination of just all three things that are really in a place of turbulence right now. And your father, being a black law enforcement officer who's been doing this for three decades, I know you said he's a really private person and not to delve in too much, but as a black man, what was his experience like in law enforcement? Because clearly even three decades ago, things were not to the place they are now as far as equality and diversity and anti-discrimination laws, et cetera. What was his experience like? And did he ever share any of that with you? Yeah, so, you know, not to get too deep into where, because he and I don't work in the same place, but we both work here on the West Coast, which, you know, I would say is probably pretty far ahead in terms of how policing is done. And I think that's just kind of how it's always been. The West Coast is pretty at the forefront and how how we police, community policing, et cetera. So, you know, I think that for my dad, working out here was especially as being a black officer was probably a good thing. I know he has told me, like you said, he's a pretty private person, but he's told me specifically of one instance that he had with when he was a patrol officer where he was at, I believe it was some radio call and there was a supervisor out there who made a racial statement about black people and did not know that my dad was around and kind of ended up seeing my dad after he'd made the statement. My dad ended up addressing it with him later, you know, which from a, you just a patrol officer to somebody in the supervisor standpoint that has its own difficulties and how you're, you're addressing basically somebody who's your boss. But, you know, that was one instance that he told me about, but I think for the most part, it's been pretty positive. You know, obviously it's it's gotten better. And he's got it from, I think, you know, both aspects. He's got it from people in um, some negative, I think, interaction with people in the Black community as well. Kind of almost like what it is today. You know, how could you do this? You're a traitor. You mean for just being a cop in general? 
Yeah, for, I think for being a black police officer, for being black and being a police officer, like the, you know, how could you be, how could you be a cop? You know, almost like you, you're a traitor. Um, he hasn't gone into specifics of that with me, just kind of kept it very surface level. And like, this is how I deal or interact with people when they say things about me being a police officer. And what he tells them is black people couldn't even do this job X amount of years ago. We weren't allowed to. And then when we were, we could only police black communities. So we now have the same opportunities to do this job that we could not do not that long ago. And he tells him, do you only want to see a police department that looks like one person? You know, do you want to see somebody who's in the uniform who looks like you do and also who comes from a background that is similar to yours that would be able to empathize or know what it is that you're dealing with or what it is that you're, you know, where you're coming from, because I've lived it. I grew up with it. I, I know what it's like. And so I think he, he wants to make sure that black people are represented within the profession. And it also goes to the profession as well, because if you only have one type of person doing the job, they might not be doing something intentionally to harm somebody, but they might not know any better. They might not have had that background. So you're getting people from all walks of life to do this job because it's important because we are dealing with the public. So we want to make sure the public is represented within the department because it's a great thing for the department and for the officers as well. So, but I think that's kind of how he's, he's kind of dealt with it. I think on both sides of his career from dealing with some racist remarks from people in the white community or that, you know, white people that are also officers to dealing with you know, people in the black community that are maybe looking at him like you're, you're a traitor for being a police officer. So um, I think he's kind of got it on both sides and he's done well, I think, to, to address those things. So that's been kind of his experience. I think overall, it's been a, an overwhelmingly positive one. And he's created some really great friendships and had some fantastic people, which I've also got to meet. And, you know, for me growing up, that was what a police officer was. These really great people that my dad had in his life and had his job. So that's kind of his experience and how it's kind of bled into my own. Well, I think you bring up a really good point that when people aren't exposed to diversity, they're not going to really understand different races, ethnicities, or cultures. I think part of the places that maybe we do still see some prejudice, stereotypes, and even borderline racism or full-on racism are probably in communities where they're not exposed to diversity. They're not exposed. They don't know anybody of different races where they actually get to know them on a friendship level, on a colleague level. Because when you do that, when, when somebody becomes humanized and they represent something to you and you get connected and emotionally invested in them, to me at least, it feels like it's a lot harder to hate that entire race, hate that entire culture, or generalize and stereotype that entire culture. And this goes both ways. Because let's yeah. say in the black community, if they are not exposed to white people, do not have white friends, do not have 
Asian friends, Hispanic friends, different people, that they can have that tolerance for differences and different races and cultures, and there's not an understanding there, then it's a lot easier to sit back and say, I hate those people. Those people usually bring me negativity. Those people are dangerous, etc. And vice versa, if you're a white cop who's never had a coworker, another officer who's black that you got to know, got to know about his family, got to know intimately over those years where you guys are saving each other's lives and you have that connection. It's really easy for you to make these generalizations and racist remarks and comments that are unacceptable because you don't have that connection and investment into somebody of that community. And so your dad was right in the sense that by him representing the black community within a police department, it helps not only the black community, it helps the other white officers or other race officers that get to know him and help develop a healthier view of the black community as well. Yes, absolutely. I agree. And so back to you being biracial, because like I said, you're kind of, you've got one foot over here and one foot over here. Growing up and all the way up until now, if you don't mind going into this um, topic, I want to know, has that been a struggle for you, basically being a part of two communities where at times at least you may not have felt like you completely belonged in one or the other? You know, so I will say I am, like we, we discussed, I'm a mixed race. So dad's black, mom's white, but I think I present more white. Most people actually tend to think I'm like, Italian, which I am, but that's kind of how I look as a person, but from my family. So I'm putting that out there because I think that's going to have play a little bit in our future conversation. But, you know, my family's, I've never had any issues with any side of my family, both sides of my mom's family and my white family, you know, they love me and my brother and my dad hands down, no issues. Race has never been a problem. Same with my dad's side of the family, my black side of the family. I've never, I've never felt any type of negativity from them. I mean, they, they love me to death. And my dad has sisters. All my aunties are just phenomenal women. They love, they love on me so hard. It's, it's been awesome. So from my own family, I've never, ever felt any type of, uh, well, he, you know, he looks white or, uh, you know, he's black. So I've never gotten that from them. Now I've dealt with that kind of growing up where first time was in high school where again, I present more as white or somebody who's, you know, Italian, whatever. So I don't come off looking black, but I, in high school dealt with people who just because they knew I was black you know, would make racist remarks, you stupid N-word, you know, you know, whatever it was, they would make comments like that in high school. That was, and that was new to me. Um, I hadn't experienced that before. Um, and that started, I think, right when was, I started at my high school that I, I graduated from, I started there in 10th grade. So that started right around 10th grade. And did you bring that back to your parents? Did you let them know? Not until I, so I wrote my college entrance essay on being mixed race in America and dealing with, you know, racism or discrimination from both sides and trying to find my own identity while dealing with some negative experiences from communities that I'm part of equally. Uh, So when I wrote that I was a senior, maybe a couple months away from graduating, you know, my dad was 
not surprised because, you know, he had just been in high school X amount of years earlier and dealt with that himself. Obviously was not, you know, happy about it, but my mom was heartbroken. You know, she's white and her son's going to, you know, she, her biracial son's going to school in 2000. I don't know. I graduated in like 2006, seven, eight, something like that. She's, you know, I can't believe that you're still dealing with this. Not that she's so like, oh, racism doesn't exist. But I think like to her, you know, her son who doesn't really present as black and is going to school in the year 2000 is still dealing with this. I, I received that from, you know, not all, but some white people that I went to high school with. But I also growing up, I went to some summer camps where I was literally like the only person who was not obviously black. Mm. I'm black, but I'm not obvious. So I dealt with some discrimination there too. It's hard for me to make friends, you know, and they, you know, white boy, whatever it was, you know, I have some people that would say some things there as well, which were hurtful and discriminatory from people in the black community. I've had negative experiences with both communities that I'm a part of, that I'm fiercely proud of being part of. Um, which has been tough. It's been that that's been hard growing up, but it's kind of made me who I am and made me see that, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. No one person owns the rights to racism. White people can be racist. Black people can be racist. Asian people, you know, whoever, anybody can be racist. It doesn't matter. I've lived that. So I've had fantastic experiences and great experiences with people from both communities. I've had some amazing friendships, you know, people from both communities, but I've also had my, my tough times and like trying to find my identity with who I am while maybe not being fully accepted by either side, which was that kind of the point of that entrance essay I wrote, you know, trying to find where I belong while not fully being accepted by both sides. And while I think that that difficulty from not really having a defined identity, because what I'm learning in a lot of these talks with either members of the black community or others that we've been talking about this stuff with is, you know, a sense of identity is so important. And as a teen, a lot of times you're basically falling into a category of what you think you need to be or who you think you need to act like to impress your peer group, whatever that peer group is. It could be a racial peer group. It could be a group in, you know, into a certain hobby or something. We all want to fit in so badly that we tend to want to align with a group. And I was just talking about this last week. Sometimes there's this idea of what black is supposed to look like. And if you're yes. black, this is how you're supposed to act. And this is the kind of yeah. music you're supposed to listen to. This is the way you're supposed to talk. These are the kind of activities you're supposed to get involved with if you're really black. Right. And this right. is coming from the black community itself. I think sometimes teens find themselves in this position where it's like there's almost this grand stereotype of just what black looks like. Yes, I 100% agree with you. I actually, when I was in college, some closer friends of mine who are uh, phenomenal, well-educated Black men were having that conversation about how, you know, sometimes you feel like you have to speak a certain way or act a certain way. You know, no disrespect to, to anybody, but it's almost like if you... 
speak very well and are well spoken and I speak like like you're you're coming from a very like educated standpoint it's almost like oh you're talking white mm-hmm. right like no that that's not it white people don't have don't have ownership of sounding educated that's just me coming off sounding educated so I feel like sometimes as the black community you know I don't stuff like that kind of breaks my heart because I don't want people to think that when they hear somebody who's very well spoken that that oh that's how white people talk no that's how people speak that are well educated and that you know sometimes it feels like if you speak that way you know you're not you're not black or you have to speak a certain way around you know your black friends and speak a a different way around your white friends right it's kind of an interesting dynamic to listen to or to be a part of is that sometimes you feel like like you almost have to be like a racial chameleon and change how you are around you know different groups of people Right. I was having that discussion also with um, another black man that I was talking with that this idea of black people somehow being some monolithic group, like you all have to act a certain way, you all have to believe in a certain political party, like as if there's no individualism within that collective, because the black community really operates more in in terms of a collective, instead of seeing themselves individually. And so when somebody steps out of that, talks a little differently, believes a little differently, maybe is a conservative, maybe is doing things and not repeating the narrative, then it's instantly looked down upon. It's instantly criticized, even though that viewpoint is just as valid as any other black man's viewpoint, because everybody has validity to their own experience. And I think it creates diversity within the community, which I think that's what you want, you know, and we were all made to be different. So... I don't think that anybody should be held to, you need to be this way. So like, like I was saying, the diversity within the community is, it's great. You know, that's what you want. And you want people to feel free to express themselves or, or be who they are without feeling like they have to talk or act a certain way or listen to a certain type of music to be accepted. And that if they don't do those things, then they aren't. Exactly. And so as somebody who's biracial then and has gone through these experiences to get to that point of young adulthood, now you're going through your adulthood. And over the last several years, we've seen a lot of contentiousness as it relates to the law enforcement and the community as specifically with race relations. How do you think being biracial has given you a different or better or more thorough perspective on this as involving what's going on right now? Oh, I think a big part of why I I got into this job or one of my still big motivations is, you know, not only did I want to serve like a, I guess, a higher calling or purpose, but, you know, I wanted to have a direct impact on this narrative between law enforcement and the black community. And that was kind of like a big goal of mine. And it still is. I think being biracial helps because I'm literally the product of two people who look completely different, you know, overcoming what society says about black people and white people. And, you know, my parents have been married for over 30 years and my brother and I are now the product of that. So I I see that coming from a, a biracial background that what happens when two people from completely different backgrounds come together and love each other. And so it's something that I take with me when I deal with everybody, 
mm-hmm. um, to look past how they appear and kind of like Martin Luther King said, to judge them on the content of their character, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is very, very important. Another thing is, like I said, I wanted to have a direct impact on how law enforcement, our relationship with the black community. So I will say this first and foremost, I treat everybody who I come in contact with respect. And I would like to say that I police 100% equally, which I do in terms of the enforcement side. But I would say that when I come into contact with somebody who is from the black community, I know what the narrative is between them and law enforcement. And I will try to put in a little more effort or a little more care to try and create a dialogue with that person. Spend a little more time talking to them, asking them about themselves, about their families, what it is that they're doing, what, you know, what it is that they hope to do to succeed, whatever it is, because I can't tell you how many times I've contacted somebody especially from the black community. And they said, you know what? You're one of the coolest officers I've ever talked to. And the only way I can, I see that I can fight this narrative that's especially pushed by the media is one contact at a time, one conversation at a time, one person at a time. If I can change one person's outlook that, you know what? Not all officers are bad. I met Officer so-and-so, you know, he was cool. He treated me right. He treated me with respect. And I've done that with people even after I've arrested them and and treated them with dignity and respect, which I always do because I'm not the, I'm not the judge. I'm not the jury. You know, I tell people all the time, like, I'm not judging you. I'm just here. I've got to do my job, but I still treat them with respect. And I've had them tell me, even after I arrest them, you're one of the coolest officers I've ever met. For me, that's a that's why I started. That's a I mean, that's a big reason why I started, and that's a big motivation for me every day as well. So, especially now, you know, like you said, I've got a hand in everything. I'm white. I'm black. I'm a police officer, and those are all. I feel like all those things are kind of coming to a head right now. Um, so in this time, it's pretty difficult, but I, you know, I still am doing my best to have those positive interactions. Because I think that is the way that, you know, we're going to be able to come together or or change or have more communication or more trust or a better relationship. So for me, that's kind of how this whole being biracial and thing has affected me doing this job and kind of what my big motivations are while I'm out there and why I started. Well, and you bring up a really good point about changing the narrative by having one conversation at a time, not to divert into topics here, but that's kind of why I got involved in the medical freedom debate, the informed consent debate, the vaccine debate, because I realized the media was presenting anybody who questioned vaccine safety as, quote, anti-vaxxers. And that became a really negative label. Every single article, every single news piece that you see really looks at people in the worst way. Like it's acceptable to hate these people. It's acceptable to discriminate against them, to wish, you know, ill will on them. I mean, some of the comments I've received have just been absolutely disgusting, you know, from another human being who doesn't even know me. 
And right. a lot of people think, how can I make change? You know, how the government is not going to be able to be turned over on this. The legislature is clearly bought and paid by industry. So how right. do I make a change? And a lot of what I've always advocated for and said is you have to tell your story and you have to have this one conversation at a time. You, every person that you get a chance to speak with, this is what I do. Every time I'm anywhere, if I'm taking a trip somewhere, I'm in the Uber driver, the airplane, whatever, I open this conversation up with almost everybody because I feel like that's a unique opportunity for them to leave that conversation feeling differently about who they think people who question vaccine safety are. And every conversation that I've had, I've had people say, wow, I really, your story makes so much sense. You seem so well-educated on this. You don't seem like what the media has presented you to be. And I realize that's just one conversation, but that one conversation right. could go to their friend circle, their family circle, whoever. They no longer have a stereotype of who, quote, anti-vaxxers are. They understand these are parents of vaccine-injured children or at-risk children. They have a little more compassion and sympathy, and there's a little more understanding. And slowly but surely, this becomes a bridge for the public to really understand what we're fighting for. But that's not a message you'll get if you only view the media's presentation of who we are. Absolutely. The media, it's very dangerous, the fact that they do things like this, because it creates a system of hate. It creates an us versus them mentality. And they're 100 percent right. doing this with law enforcement and the black community. So how do you think then the media has harmed this relationship and what do you think's behind it? So I think in all this, the people that I've been the most upset with or become the most angry at is the mainstream media because they live by this, if it bleeds, it leads. It's, that's what they present. That's what they push. That's, what, that's what's going to get the most clicks or the most site traffic or the most views is these negative things, whether it be any group of people, the white community, the black community, you know, all, whether they're pushing a story that all white people are racist or whether they're pushing a story that, you know, all black people are thugs or whether they're pushing a story that all police officers are, are racist, right? They're focusing on the most negative aspects of every group of people because that is what they know sells and they're doing a disservice to every community the white community the black community police officers you know vaccine injured children it's they're they're creating this division within our society and i think they should be held to some type of standard but you know it's almost like they can I, I'm held to a standard and, you know, there's policies and procedures that I need to follow, which there should be in law enforcement. And I think, you know, with the media, I don't really know if there is, there might be that with them, but if it is, I'd be shocked because it's almost like they can push a headline that's so negative and doesn't tell half the story that actually happened, or, you know, they can omit a giant part of a story which has a giant outcome on why things played out the way they did. And that makes people angry as well. So. And what know, do you think, what do you think is behind all this? Cause there's, there's a reason they're doing it. So outside of just ad revenue clicks, do you think there's a benefit here? 
for whoever is, I, I should say, controlling the media to make sure that there is that level of division? Will that somehow help them push certain policies forward that wouldn't happen without that division? I would say so, whether that be gun control, police reform, pushing for more vaccines. I think there's always like a reason that they're doing it. I think there's probably always an angle that they're pushing or some legislation that they're trying to have an effect on. So me personally, I don't watch the news. I don't really read any anything from the mainstream media because I don't trust them because in my mind, there's some angle that they're pushing. Mm-hmm. So my wife, she does a lot of research. That's actually how she ended up following you is my daughter's unvaccinated and um, I was pro-vaccine when we first had her and when she was pregnant. She did a ton of research and had to go to the CDC or looking up ingredients that were in vaccines and what was in those ingredients. She did her own research and didn't listen to the mainstream media and made her own informed decision, which I don't know how many Americans are doing that and are might just be kind of basing their opinions on what the, the media says, but I don't trust them. So, you know, I don't let them have any say on what it is that I believe because I feel like they're trying to push me into a certain belief. It's clear the media is definitely trying to shape American beliefs on certain issues, on every issue. And it's, yes. it's so obvious the way they want you to feel about it. Like whatever the topic is. They try to push this image of a person that when you think of somebody who doesn't vaccinate their children, this is what that person looks like. And now you start to generalize that, okay, well, then that whole community must look like that. And it's so disappointing because once they give the information, so let's say the articles about a measles outbreak, they don't just give the information. They give the information with a completely biased tone, again, about how you should feel about the subject, who is to blame for this, and what you should do about it. And a lot of times the what you should do about it part is the, it's okay to hate these people. It's okay to be disrespectful to these people because look what they're doing to us. They're putting you at risk. They're putting you at danger. Now this is coming back because of these people. When of course evidence doesn't really back that up, but it's you know, I took journalism earlier on in school and was really fascinated with it. I'm really concerned with the level of opinion and tone that gets added to information. So you're just supposed to be providing the facts, right? It's supposed to be objective. It's supposed to be facts. But it's no longer like that at all, like nowhere close. There is an absolutely crafted argument every time something is on the news. And again, it's shaping the way Americans believe about things. And it leads to a lack of of real education on a lot of issues. And one of those issues, which you and I talked about, have to do with officers defending themselves and this idea Mm -hmm. of use of force and what's acceptable. And when we spoke the other day, you said, it's almost as if the public feels that any use of force is too much force. Can you explain that? Yes. Yeah, it's interesting because... Some people, and there pro- there's always extremes to everything. So the extreme side of people don't think that we should be able to use force at all to protect ourselves. So once this all this stuff started happening, starting with George Floyd, I deleted my Instagram, my Facebook, because I didn't want to feel like the most hated person in America. 
Uh, my wife, on the other hand, again, she likes to be informed. So she's probably on it more to try and stay up to date. And whereas I really don't uh, engage with people, she'll have conversations with them and, you know, has talked with people and they more on the extreme side and they will say that they don't feel like we should be able to defend ourselves as police officers. So that's kind of crazy to me that there's people out there that think that no matter what, we shouldn't be able to defend ourselves. And it's kind of one of those I heard somebody say it once where, you know, people want the job to be done, but they don't want to see how it gets done. A lot of times the job is very gritty. And sometimes it requires us to get dirty, right, to use force in, in order to resolve a situation. Now, if we can resolve a situation without force, that's always the number one goal. And the, and the number two goal is if we do use force to use the lowest amount in order to resolve the situation. But it's like I've had plenty of people say that force never looks pretty. It doesn't. Even if you're just rolling around on the ground wrestling with somebody, you might not be punching them, hitting them, kicking them. You're not tasing them, but you're wrestling around on the ground with somebody. That still doesn't look good to people. But sometimes that's, that's what it takes. And it, it, we have to do that and able to sometimes to, to resolve a situation. And sometimes the force that we use is to keep the situation from escalating so that we have to use even greater force. So it's almost like some people to the extreme don't think that we should be able to defend ourselves or that any use of force, like I told you when we talked last week, is too much or any use of force is excessive. But they have no knowledge of the situation. There's all these people that have these opinions on how we should do our jobs, but they've never done the job or they've never been in a situation with somebody who's you know having mental a mental breakdown and is fighting with you and how hard that is and how sometimes scary that can be you know all these people are kind of saying like this defund the police and give more money to social workers or mental health care workers and and i don't disagree that if we have more funding yes those people should receive as much funding as they can receive but those people are not equipped to deal with somebody who is having a mental breakdown, who is having a physical outburst. That's what, that's what we are there for. And sometimes, unfortunately, those situations require us to go what we call hands-on. And we do it in the lowest amount of force that we can use, but it's, it's required sometimes. You know, somebody who's high on drugs, they're high on meth. They're high on PCP, right? Like that requires us to use force sometimes to get that person in the handcuffs or to get them into custody. And that could be for their own well-being so they don't hurt themselves or so that we don't have to use more force later on. It's really eye-opening when you're in the job or when you're in these dynamic situations where you go from zero to 100 really quick and you have to act and bring that situation to a resolution. Again, I think the biggest thing is people want the job to be done, but they don't always want to see how it's done or what it takes to get the job done. And so when you see these highly publicized incidences that 
you know, are all over the media that have to do with excessive force or too much force. And there's instantly the racial stigma put on if the suspect is black and the cop is white. Do you Mm -hmm. feel in these situations with excessive force that they are, the majority of these are racially motivated? I can say that in my own experience doing this job that I've only ever met one person who is a police officer who I thought, okay, I think that guy or girl is racist. You know, I've never been in a situation where they're like, hey, let's give this guy a beating because he's X color. I can say that in my own opinion that, you know, a lot of these, I don't believe they would be racially motivated, but that's not to say that some of them are not. Is it risky, though, when the media already jumps to that conclusion initially without even having evidence? Absolutely, because, again, that's creating that, well, all police officers are racist. Or the famous, you know, black man beaten by police, right? Like, they're automatically setting the tone for the rest of the article. Even just based on the headline, unarmed, ad color, man, XYZ by police. Now, does that mean that he was unarmed, but was he fighting with them? It's, it's like he was unarmed. He was just standing there and they jumped on him. Right. And they started beating him up. Like that's kind of the tone that they're putting out. Now, that's not to say that there's people in this job that shouldn't be in it. Mm-hmm. And I've come across one of them, like I said, um, who absolutely met that criteria. I was just going to ask you about that story, actually. You said you had... You've come across good cops, you've come across positive police experiences and a few negative ones, and one particular experience where you felt you were on the receiving end of some racist remarks with a supervisor that you worked for. Can you tell the listeners about that story? I worked for a supervisor. He was a a white guy, and um, we had some incidents early on when I started working for him where he did not like he told me to do something. I didn't know that it was the correct thing to do. So I kind of went to some other officers, asked for their opinions. They all said, yeah, you know what? You're right. So I approached him about it very respectfully and said, kind of like a teachable moment type thing. And from that point on, you know, he, he took it as me challenging him. So he, you know, hostile work environment for sure. But there were also three, three incidents where he, knowing, knowing I was black, used the N-word around me with other people around as well. Like, in a joking manner, right? He thought he was joking, but it wasn't okay. Especially, it's never, ever, ever okay. I agree. But especially in our profession where, and this was two years ago, where things were already, the relationship between police and the black community was not good. It's never, ever okay to do that, but especially right now, especially when you are white and you are saying these racist things about the black community and they are, and there's already trust issues between our two groups of people. And so I kind of was putting up with this. I was new in my career. I didn't know how I should handle it. I didn't know if I was, am I being soft? Am I, you know, should I say something? I had a few, a few veteran officers come to me and say, hey, dude, that's not acceptable. He, he was well-liked at the department because not everybody had seen that side of him. Mm-hmm. 
So that was kind of what I was afraid of is, you know, what's going to happen if I come forward? Well, my dad being, you know, higher up in a position in law enforcement. So, you know, being like an administrative position, being a, a police officer for 30 years and being black and having dealt with his own racist situations in the job, I, I was really embarrassed to tell him that I worked for somebody like this, but I wanted his opinion. And I'll never forget, I started crying my eyes out when I was telling him because it was just so hurtful and I didn't know what to do and I felt stuck. And he was like, you need to go tell your chief. So I told my chief and uh, they ended up doing uh, an investigation. And I think the other thing I was afraid of is I don't know if people will come forward and be honest, right? Because there's a couple of times where he said it around multiple people Mm -hmm. and I didn't know if they would not back me, right? Because I'm not, it wasn't like picking sides, but I didn't know if they'd be truthful. Well, because they're worried about their careers Um, too. Absolutely. But, you know, I had people that were and they told the truth and the department, he ended up resigning in lieu of termination. And I'll never forget talking to my dad. You know, he's like, you just probably saved your department a future lawsuit or some, you know, negative story on the media because that guy is not out there and not able to treat people like that anymore. And, you know, like I was telling you earlier, you know, I could have gotten a lawyer and tried to sue the city. And that was never my, you know, that's not what I did this job for. Obviously, I didn't become a police officer to become rich, but I didn't want this person being out there treating people this way, treating me this way, treating other potential officers this way. This was somebody who should not be a police officer. You know, it it was really hard, really, really hard to step forward and say something. But looking back on it, I'm so happy that I did because I feel like I did the right thing and hopefully saved, you know, somebody an experience like the one that I went through. So it was worth it. But I would say in my whole career of all the people I've ever met growing up, my dad's coworkers, all the people I've been in the academy with, the tons of officers that I've come into contact with from other agencies, I've only ever met one who I was like, you know what, that dude's racist. So I've met so many good police officers who are out there doing the job the right way. But, I, but I've also met some that really, really suck. So when there's you know people saying that, hey, there needs to be change in law enforcement, I don't disagree with them because I've dealt with it myself. And then also policing is done differently in different parts of the country. So my dad's family lives in Oklahoma. Policing in certain parts of the country is a little bit a little bit backwards thinking. My family has had their own negative experiences with law enforcement, which breaks my heart because it's a profession that I'm proud of. Um, so I know that that is real mm-hmm. and that it's out there. So I don't want to, I want to make sure that I don't discredit or I don't make light of anybody who has dealt with a terrible police officer. And I apologize on behalf of those people that anybody listening may have dealt with something like that, but that's why I got involved. And I can tell you again, that the overwhelming majority of officers I know do this job the right way and they do it to help people regardless of their skin color. Well, and I think one of the things that you mentioned uh, that I find interesting is that that particular supervisor you dealt with was a very, you said, my way or the highway type. He didn't like you challenging authority. He probably had that little bit of a chip on his shoulder. 
you know, you get people like that in all different types of professions, but when you put them right. in a position of power with mm -hmm. weapons, this has been my big argument. Like you said, there are certain people that should not be police officers because they should not be in a position to maybe abuse that power and not so much that everything is racially motivated, but just that they are going too far with any suspect because they feel they have the right to do it and they have the power to do it. And sometimes I think law enforcement really does attract a certain type to the job, that physical response when there's conflict. And, you know, the irony there is you sort of need that element to be able to have somebody in these life or death circumstances protecting people. Because if you have the kind of person who just wants to sit and analyze all day long and just theorize, then they're not going to be able to react in the moment where you need somebody to react because it is a physical job. It's like a good and bad, right? And the, the bad part about that is sometimes you get people who are a little too aggressive. Maybe you get people who, again, abuse their power and they don't want somebody challenging authority. What if that's a suspect? Oh, that suspect talks back to you and now you're going to prove it to them that you don't like that and you're the one in charge and that's where it goes too far. And I, again, right. I, I don't think that's so much an issue of race as it is the hierarchy that they feel they have over somebody. And again, this is not all law enforcement by any means, but you get the couple that are like that, that tends to be the ones that have the issues. And some officers say that they end up getting weeded out over time because they'll end up doing something that will either create a problem for the department or a lawsuit or something. But unfortunately, they don't get to that point until they've already victimized somebody, you know. Right, right. And he is, you know, it's funny because he sucked. I'm sorry, excuse my language, but he uh, he kind of sucked in general with everybody. It didn't mm -hmm. matter who you were. And to your point, yeah, you need somebody who's, it's like you want somebody who's quick to action if, when, when it's called for, but you want somebody who is under control, right? It's mm -hmm. like they can be aggressive, but it's under control the whole time. They know when to stop. Those are the people that you need. It is, it's tough. You want somebody who's going to be quick to action, but you also want somebody who's thinking, right? You don't want somebody who's going to go overboard. Mm -hmm. And it's true, you know, you don't want it to get to a situation where, you know, oh, well, they did something and now, you know, somebody else was victimized. You don't want that. And, right. and I can tell you, nobody hates a bad cop more than good cops because it makes the rest of us look bad. I promise you that. I promise you. Nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. I think we're going to stop things there for part one. With this particular officer, there is so much more to come. A lot of openness, some honest reactions, and some emotion on this next episode. You're not going to want to miss it. So that will be part two of this law enforcement episode on what they aren't telling you with Melissa Floyd. Thanks for listening.